postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up a white flag and saying, ah, it's all the secular people's fault, and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic how can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism redesigned. So let me ask you this. Um, in terms of spiritual gifts then, so I'm switching gears a little bit here to, to spiritual gifts. Feel free to, to add some more to the family marriage thing if you want. Um, so my next question is on spiritual gifts, but I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm, I'm not trying to rush you into that one. You can you can say more on the other one if you have more that you want to add there. But yeah, how I has we can, this, we can move forward? Okay, all right, sweet. So how has in your estimation and your experience, how has the headship framework? Um, how has it impacted our view in the church on spiritual gifts and the role of women in the body of Christ, in the mission of the church? I know you've touched on that a little bit so far, uh, but I guess I wanted to kind of like maybe bullseye hone in on that some more. Yeah, that's powerful. What a, what a question. <laughs> and that could be a book all by itself. I'll say this. There are no gender specific spiritual gifts. Nowhere do we see men can get this, women cannot. And within the Adventist church, we, we haven't called anybody an apostle, but the highest authority that we have belongs to inspiration. Um, the Bible and those that are called to be prophets have authority over opinions or positions of church authority. If the general conference president says one thing and Ellen White said another, which one are we going to go with? It's a no-brainer, which which just amuses me when people try to use Ellen White's authority to prove that um, women shouldn't have authority. Um, <laughs> the irony is just fantastic. Yeah, that, that one's always comical. <laughs> yes, but you know, here's the thing. Um, in the Catholic church, church structure and church position is what gives authority. So a person who has a higher position in the church has authority even to the point where they can change scripture. This is how we're unlike the Catholic Church. We're the opposite because the Catholic Church says if the church says it, the church can change. You know, if you're in a high enough position of authority like Pope, the church can change what the scripture says, what God himself says. Now, not every Catholic believes that, but that's what official doctrine says. Whereas in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we're like, nope, 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 nothing has authority over inspiration. Now, as Adventists, we don't put Ellen White on the same plane with the Bible. And I think God himself really showed us, you know, let the Bible interpret itself. Early Adventists would stay up for hours, even all night, sometimes studying and agonizing in prayer together, trying to understand doctrines. And then when they came to a conclusion, then God might affirm it through Ellen White, say, yes, you guys have come to the right conclusion. But he didn't just let them do, take a shortcut, Ellen White says because they needed to get it from scripture. And I believe our doctrines are rooted solidly in scripture. But having said that, we still understand that the authority that inspiration holds is higher than any position of church authority. 
in Ephesians 4, saying, you know, prophets came above pastors and teachers in their authority. The gifts are supposed to lead to spiritual maturity. That's the thing. So that the entire body can serve. We're like puzzle pieces and everybody's unique and we each need to fill our place. This is where, you know, Adventism is, again, superior to a lot of other um, denominations, because at least in theory, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. We don't have this idea that, well, the guys who have decided to be celibate and have gone through these vows and live in monasteries or convents, then these are the people who have a higher spiritual position and can intercede for others. Um, the Reformation in many ways was damaging to the movement for women to be in ministry because it ended up making it so that instead of having priests, now women had husbands over them. Where before, when, um, when a woman wanted to pray or intercede, you know, it was, it was just different. The, the Reformation essentially reset up uh, a temptation to believe that women had to have men over them. And they would, you know, we, we substituted a, the husband as the authority over the wife when that wasn't the way God intended it. That wasn't apparently the way that things were in the early church. You know, we have a church meeting at Lydia's house. We have a church meeting at Nympha's house. Neither one of those churches has any male leader mentioned. If those were males, if it was a church at Peter's house or a church at Ananias' house, everybody would have automatically assumed, well, Ananias is probably leading out. We don't have any indication that Lydia and Nympha weren't leading out in those home churches. We don't even know if they had husbands or what their husbands' names were if they did. So it, it seems clear that the early church just had leveled the ground more and more as, as they realized it dawned on them, you know, through the whole discussion of circumcision. They're like, oh, wow, Gentiles aren't dogs. They actually are made in the image of God, too. And they actually can be in leadership and in ministry. And um, they can be the people of God just as much as Jews. That was a that was a mind-blowing discovery in Acts. And it seems that they just followed on going, oh, wow, slaves actually are human beings, too. So, yeah, they still have to follow orders. And, of course, you know, slaves might have been bought and, you know, or be in bondage having to pay off debts or something like that. But in the church, men, slaves, women, Romans, Jews, Greeks, circumcised, uncircumcised, everybody was seen to be created in the image of God. It's the great leveling ground. And later on, we see a suppression of that, um, particularly in the Dark Ages. But with the Adventist church, we've tried at least to reverse a lot of that, you know, the priesthood of believers is in Exodus 19. Before the Ten Commandments are even given, God says, you are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What were priests supposed to do? They were supposed to intercede for others. They were supposed to teach others about the character of God. Uh, are, are we saying that women can't? You know, we have these, these ridiculous ways we rationalize, well, women's positions are higher than men's because women are teaching the children at home, okay? And they can teach Sabbath school, okay? And they can teach and preach at church, okay? And they can lead women's Bible study groups, okay? And they can teach groups of men and women. So see, we're way ahead 
of a lot of the other churches out there and that we believe women can do all of these things. But then when it comes to ordination, we're suddenly like, whoa, wait, that's a man's place. Um, I, I found it ironic and uh, actually comical that, um, hmm, should I mention the name? I probably shouldn't mention the name huh? <laughs> of an organization. There was an organization outside of conference and church control, but that was working, you know, in cooperation with the Seventh-day Adventist Church, even with all the way up to GC level. Many of the leaders from this organization have been um, moved on to positions within the GC and, you know, there it's, it's well recognized as a place that, you know, God is leading his young people to work. And at one point they had a female president of the organization. And I was like, well, great. That's awesome. Um, but then when I was talking to somebody who was actually a leader of the TOSC or one of, one of the people who was on the theology of ordination study committee, as I remember anyway, so he, he was saying, well, but it's fine to have a woman as the president of that organization because it's not a position in the church. I was like, okay, help me understand this. Women have to be under men's authority, but she's not under men's authority because she's not part of the church. But if tomorrow this organization that works in harmony with the church were to come under the church in an official way, she would actually have a man then in authority over her, the general conference president, if nobody else. But then she wouldn't be allowed to have that position because then she would technically have a man in authority over her, which would make her be in a position of spiritual responsibility, except that this organization is said to be making such a profound difference in spiritual circles. So is she in a position of spiritual authority or not? Well, no, because she's not officially under the church, which means she's not officially under male authority. It doesn't make any sense. That is what just, oh my goodness. Yeah, I, just, I got dizzy. <laughs> I got dizzy gymnastics. just trying to make sense of the gymnastics. Yeah, the mental gymnastics yeah. that people have to jump through. Oh my goodness. Yeah, put a woman in authority, except if she doesn't have a man over her, that's okay. Except that women always have to have men over them. But her father is over her. She was an unmarried woman, so it's okay for her to be in authority because her father is over her. Yeah. Wait, what? It does none of it makes any sense, except if you look at the priesthood of all believers and believe every single one of us is placed in spiritual leadership somehow. We are supposed to be leading souls to the kingdom. Hmm. And and as the Hebrews in the wilderness were called to take the gospel to the rest of the world. So as the Adventist church, we've been called and, and Christianity as a whole to take the gospel to the world. Um, but how can we do that if we say, well, the priests can do that. The pastors can do that. The rest of us are supposed to be working in secular jobs. How does that work? We all know the places where the church goes like wildfire are the places where everyone is a minister. Everyone is a missionary. So yeah, I'm, I'm not interested in hearing arguments about the pedantics of, well, but it's okay for women to be a ministry. They're just not to be paid. I had so many um, people try to tell me that, well, it's just wrong for women to be trying to push for those highest places by trying to get into ministry. I'm like, well, that's a fascinating argument because the highest place is not what anybody's supposed to be fighting for. If ministry ordains you to the lowest place, then a woman is just saying, I'd like to be able to minister in even more self-sacrifice 
who's going to object to that? Exactly. Yep. <laughs> um, it, it's only that's this hierarchical mindset. And I'll say, well, and I, I had some really comical, honestly, conversations with at least one guy who's a die hard women must be kept out of ordained positions. And I'm like, okay, so help me understand what that means. Well, women are trying to get positions of power and authority as well, but ordination doesn't set you aside for the low, highest place. It sets you aside for the lowest place. It's like, yes, I know. And men should be in that lowest place. Wait, what? <laughs> you just told me that women were trying to get positions of power and authority that belonged only to men. <laughs> Help me understand this doesn't work. Either women are trying to get into the positions of the deepest self-sacrifice, but men believe that they should be in the positions of deepest self-sacrifice. So there's nothing wrong with a woman that's an admirable desire. Or women are trying to get positions of power that only men are entitled to. You can't have both. It doesn't make logical sense. So, um, you know, Ben Witherington, a New Testament scholar, says the problem in the church is not strong women, but rather weak men who feel threatened by strong women and have tried yes. various means, even by dubious exegesis, <laughs> to prohibit them from exercising their gifts and graces in the church. Mm. And I've just seen this over and over. I mean, personally, as well as in, in uh, just corporately as i watch women being held back from ministry it's tragic and it mm. needs to stop yeah absolutely man you know when as you talk about the priesthood of all believers huh, should i go down this rabbit hole yes or no i'll just do it a little bit i'll just go a little bit <laughs> you can always delete it later right <laughs> so yeah that's right uh, you know what the thing is like almost every podcast episode i release i'm like is this the one that gets me fired um <laughs> but here's the thing like i'm i'm all for organization and structure and you know i, I believe that that heaven is is you know is a place of organization um and and that it's wise to have systems and structures and all that stuff. Like I'm, I'm not against any of that. Um, but one of the things I do challenge a lot, and I've been seeing this throughout many years as a local church pastor, I've been pastoring for eight years. And prior to that, I was in lay ministry. So, you know, since I was like 17 years old, um, and then prior to that, I was in church, but I didn't pay a lot of attention. So, <laughs> but the point is, um, you know, I've been, I've been, I've been in the church sort of conveyor belt for a long time. And, you know, it, it just, it really breaks my heart because so many of the issues that we have are, do not stem from biblical theology. So many of the issues that we have stem from the way in which we have structured and organized ourselves. And one of the chief things that I see in our present structure of how we do church, even if we just boil it down to the local church, is it does not empower a priesthood of all believers. Um, it at best, yeah, it, it you've got a system that perpetuates the running of a program. And that's what it's for. It's not about a priesthood of all believers. It's not about building the kingdom. It's about repeating this program that we've all come to expect, that we feel we're entitled to, that we feel like I pay my tithe, so I should get my program <laughs> on the weekend. That's what it's about. And I, I noticed this even in nominating committee, whenever I've 
chaired nominating committees in multiple churches, it's always the same thing. The first roles that we fill are the roles that are most essential to the running of the program. And then once those are filled, then we will fill the other roles, departmental roles that have to do with evangelism and outreach. And, you know, the priority is always that, that event, that program. And in that event, that program, it, it, it's structured hierarchically, right? It's started, you've got the podium and the podium is somehow more holy than the pews. Um, and the lectern is somehow like the most sacred, you know, out of all the spaces. And the, the challenge with that, I remember I had a board meeting where people were complaining. This was years ago and people were complaining that they had some people come and sing at one of the Sabbath services from another church. And they were complaining because they didn't know if those people were really living holy lives and they shouldn't be on the stage. And we need to know more about the people that we put on the stage and all this nonsense. And I was just like, oh, goodness. Um, and, and I had a conversation with someone after and I said, you know, imagine we were a New Testament church. And we were gathered in a home, uh, as the New Testament church generally did. We were gathered in a home, and we're going in a circle, sharing with each other about what God's been doing in our lives. And you have a guest who is there from, uh, you know, that you haven't met before. And you get to him, do you say, no, uh, we have to stop you. You're not allowed to share because we don't know if you're living a holy life or not. You know, like, it's obviously weird. Like, it just wouldn't know. Like, that's just, that's not a thing, you know? And it's the same thing even with, like, you know, when people have these, you know, ridiculous things. One of the churches I had, there was, you know, someone who, whenever there was a woman preaching, and it was a woman herself, she wouldn't come if she saw a woman preaching was on the, on the roster. And she wouldn't come. And the reason why she wouldn't come was because uh, the Old Testament said that when a woman's on her menstrual cycle, she's unclean. And for her, it was like, how do I know she's not on her menstrual cycle? And I'm getting this unclean sermon. I don't know. It was just really nutty. And I was just like, sometimes I wonder if mental health has a lot to do with this stuff. Like, you know, because sometimes people come out with such bizarre things that I'm like, I don't think anyone with like even the basic level of emotional health would even go there. But anyways, um, you know, I, I challenged with that same idea. Like if we're all sitting in a home sharing with each other as the New Testament church did, and, and a woman started sharing as you do in Sabbath school, as you do in a Bible study, would you say, oh, you got to stop talking because I don't know if you're, you know, like on your menstrual like, like, of course not. It's like the moment you have this hierarchical, artificial hierarchical structure that's not in the Bible. I mean, let's be really clear about that, right? It's not there. We made that up later. Right? Um, and I'm not saying that, you know, obviously there's a place for spiritual leadership and um, the, the moral qualifications of spiritual leadership. I'm not knocking that. But it's this really artificial, like that stage there of that little bit of elevated floor is like holier than everything else. It's just ridiculous. And, and I think about this in terms of like women's ministry as well, because like I fully believe, as you said, the priesthood of all believers, that's how the church works, right? It's not a hierarchy. It's not a, a program where certain people with certain gifts can use their gifts and everybody else sits around and observes. It's a priesthood of all believers. And what is a priest's job in, 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 in throughout scripture? A priest's job is to intercede, as you mentioned. Essentially, a priest's job is to connect a person to God. That, that's the, the simplest way of, you know, it's kind of like a little bridge, right? Like the, between the human and, and God, that's what the priest. So like God's calling all of us, men and women, to be 
like these little priests, like these little bridges, you know, obviously Jesus is like the ultimate priest. So I'm not saying this in a Catholic sense, but there's a, like a right. practical sense okay. in which everywhere we go, we're connecting people to the heart of God. And it's like men, women, everybody, like get in there and get to work, you know? And it's just like these artificial structures that we then put in place get in the way of that. And so I suppose the, the ultimate point I'm trying to get to is, you know, like I'm not anti-institutional and I'm not anti-structure or anti any of that. I think all of it is necessary and important, but I find the way I see it is I believe these structures and systems and institution should be there to serve the spread of the gospel. But what seems to have happened is that instead of the institution serving the message, the message is now a servant to the institution where we tweak the message to whatever suits the institutional needs. And that's, I believe, what's happening with the women's ordination crisis. Yeah, there's no right reason. I mean, I'm, I'm totally in favor of church structure. I'm part of my conference executive committee. I love seeing that we have a church structure. I believe the fastest and best way that we can deal with the abuse problem within the church is to set up some structures and systems. We, we could certainly do much better. You know, here in America right now, there's this massive crisis with the Southern Baptist Convention because for decades they have moved sexual predators from place to place, just like the Catholic Church. And I know so many stories that it's happened in the Adventist Church too. Same way, same thing. But the difference between us and the Southern Baptist Convention is that we aren't in a congregational model. So with the Southern Baptist, some guy, you know, starts a house church in his living room in Sacramento and then starts abusing kids. Most of the time, he's not going to get charged and convicted because, you know, 98, 99% of sexual predators who prey on children end up not getting convicted. Then, so if he gets caught, the church gets an upheaval. They're going to be really upset, but he's going to move to Chicago and start another church in his living room because that's what they do. And in the Southern Baptist Convention, there are no real systems or structures in place to stop him from doing that. In the Adventist Church, we have a structure, praise God. You know, we could do some amazing things with just a little bit of work. And I'm, I'm optimistic that there are systems being put in place. I know many godly church leaders that are taking this seriously. And that are working on doing something about that. But the Adventist Church within 18 months to two years could put structures into place very quickly and easily to become the safest church in North America. It would be a cinch because we have church structure, because we have authority systems. The only church that's better structured to do this than us is the Catholic Church. But they won't because of their ordination understanding. And we struggle with the same thing. Once a guy is ordained, we just really, really don't want to remove his credentials. and cause a stain upon the name of the church and to cause him all this suffering so we move him too that's what we've done historically and unfortunately that's still often what we do um i've seen some strides in this department i i see that god is working and there are many godly wise church leaders who are willing to stand up at any cost but this is where church structure is fantastic it's it's a tool to be used but we are not to be used by the tool we are to be the ones who are the priesthood of all believers that are all taking the gospel to the world together. You know, when, when the church is in crisis, when people are worshiping in the metro stations um, in, on Sabbaths in Ukraine, because that's the bomb shelter right now. And yesterday, as they were keeping Sabbath there, 
who was leading out? Who really cares? Are they only going to have church wherever the pastor is? Or is every family going to be leading out in their own worship service? Does it take a crisis like that for us to realize that every single one of us is to lead our homes and our families and our neighbors and anybody else we can to Jesus? I think not. And I know there are many people who will in, in name say, oh, yes, of course, I believe that women can be in ministry. But time and again, when I said, hey, let's put women into ministry and pay them from the tithe, because that's what God said to do, I get resistance. And even like you're saying, from women, women will be like, well, why are women trying to demand money to do what any Christian should do? Just share the gospel with people. I'm like, well, that's a fascinating perspective. Are men demanding money so that they can take the gospel to the world, but women are supposed to do it for free? Why do we demonize females for doing something that we praise males for doing? You know, when I was going through college, it was, you know, the guys who had given up promising careers as doctors or lawyers or businessmen or whatever to sacrifice and become pastors. They were praised. But women who are like, I'm going to become a Bible worker. They were like, well, this is awkward. Really? Are you going to make that a career? Well, I guess you can just marry somebody because you're going to get, you know, a thousand dollars a month plus room and board if you're lucky which is okay. You know, um, it's better than nothing. And I love being paid something to do God's work. But the thing that we're doing is against counsel and women who cannot support themselves staying in ministry then have to become teachers or nurses or something like that. It's, it's not the right way. I agree. And, you know, um, oh, one of the, I always struggle with like, I don't know, you probably struggle with this too. It's a, it's a dissonance. It's a cognitive dissonance. Like I've had this on, on various different topics uh, in different churches that I've pastored where there's lots of like fundamentalist ultra conservatives who are like really gung ho on Ellen White. Like they quote her for almost anything. But the moment you quote her on something they disagree with, all of a sudden their adoration and complete faithfulness to the word of the prophet seems to dissipate into the thin airs of acrobatics and gymnastics. And, you know, they just find some way to wiggle around it. I remember I had a board meeting one time, uh, sorry, a business meeting that went for two hours and almost the entire two hours. Okay. I suppose that's not strange. Most business meetings go for two hours, but what was horrible is that for almost the entire two hours, there was this debate should Adventists, should the remnant people of God, as it was framed, really be running Christmas programs because Christmas is pagan? And like, I just showed them what Ellen White says because I didn't want to waste. I don't, I don't like using Ellen White to end discussions, but I figured you guys are ultra conservative fundamentalists who like base almost like practically worship her. So maybe this can just end the discussion and we can move on to something really important. Here's what Ellen White had to say. Oh, it did not end a discussion. They just found a really clever way to wiggle around it. And it's like anybody else who does that, you accuse them of compromising and justifying. And, you know, it's just really strange. And I find the same thing when it comes to all the stuff Ellen said about paying women in ministry. And, you know, it's just, it's it's really bizarre. But anyways, that's more of a, of a, of a little bit of a rant. Um, yeah, but, what would we do if we had somebody who said, I don't have money to pay tithe? Do mm. it anyway. So if we say, God, you know, hasn't opened up a way for us to put women into ministry and pay them from tithe, do it anyway, find a way, make a way, yeah. do what God said, and he will bless your efforts. Absolutely. You know, we, we see, um, and, and I think this goes back to misinterpretation of scripture, often well-meaning 
but people will go back to their diehard Bible texts and, and even say, well, Ellen White says that, but the Bible says this, and they'll go to, you know, first Timothy three or something where they're like, well, but the qualifications of a bishop, he has to be the husband of one wife. Yeah. But, but that whole passage has been masculinized mm. everything in there. It's the, the bishop is to be the husband of one wife. I mean, that's in a list of things that are about moral qualification. And um, when it says, if a man desires to become a bishop, that's the translator's edition. That it, it's not actually masculine. Nothing in there is masculine, except he's supposed to be a one woman man. Mm. Now, I don't know if people really think that Paul should have said, and the woman shouldn't have multiple husbands, because that's just absurd, given the culture that they were in. A woman couldn't even divorce her husband. And polygamy where, you know, I mean, polyamory was common where men would have multiple wives, but women didn't have multiple husbands. You wouldn't know whose child it was. So it just, it's absurd. Like we're going to yeah. literally say, yeah, but if Paul had meant for women to be able to lead churches, he would have specified that the woman shouldn't have multiple husbands. Really? Mm. No, come on. Yeah. Let's just yeah. be logical here. Everything else in there is just talking about doing the things that we would expect any man or woman who was a godly leader to do. And in the church back then, you know, realize they're meeting maybe in a large room in Lydia's house. They don't have rake seating. They don't have pews and a pulpit up in the front. They've got people all sitting in a circle around the room. That's what we see from the evidence in archaeological um, um, background that the church would be meeting, sitting largely in a circle. So they're sharing, you know, this man speaks, that woman speaks, and they make a big deal out of, well, women were supposed to keep their heads covered because it would make it feel like it was a formal environment and we didn't want to end up with a woman, um, you know, accidentally getting mistaken for a temple prostitute because the person who's used to going to the temple and seeing a prostitute comes here and says, oh, look, they've got women with heads uncovered over here too. Yes, that's what they do here too. You know, but these are these are simple things that should be interpreted according to what we what was going on in the culture back then. It, it doesn't seem like we should be so caught up in some of this. It's clear that women were leading in the early church. Mm. We've got women teaching and leading. Priscilla and Aquila are teaching. She's teaching Paul. Um, and her name is always mentioned first. Priscilla seems to have been a significant leader. Um, it's not just Timothy's mother and grandmother who are teaching him, but women are leading out. And we see this throughout history. Beth Barr brings out how there were women leading out in the church, even throughout the Dark Ages. And admittedly, not many, mostly those positions were given to men, but there were women God called and used. and even with the scant records that we have, we know some of their names and some of their stories. So God has called women to ministry. And as a church structure, when we say, okay, women can minister, but we're not going to pay them from the tithe. I agree. God will provide for those women somehow. But just as we've seen missionaries go overseas and live terribly sacrificial lives and come back penniless and they have no retirement and no way to survive. Yeah, maybe God will provide for them, but what we're doing is wrong. Mm. We need to, you know, acknowledge the laborer is to be worthy of their hire, be they male or female. That's right. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that's clear is that um, God doesn't micromanage the church. He's, he's placed the administration of the church, although Christ is the head, the administration of the church is, is in our hands. And we will have to give an account for how we have administered the church. And, uh, you know, when you've got women in positions of ministry who are not being properly remunerated, uh, I do believe that that's something we'll have to give an account for to God. We're causing God's work to be hindered because these women have to do something else in order to keep their families fed and their homes clean and organized and things like that. You know, the, the work that a woman could be doing, she can't do. If we believe that women can write books, which men can then read and be taught, if we believe women can teach classes, I'm teaching the next generation of pastors here at Southern. Every year, I'm teaching a new batch of future pastors. How absurd is it to say that I can teach the pastors, but I can't be a pastor? Yeah. Um, I'm not trying to become a pastor. I have no, no passion to give myself that title or even to get ordained. But what we're doing as a church is wrong, and I see it because ever since the GC session that we had, um, which seemed to discourage women from going into ministry, we've seen a sharp drop off in girls coming to study theology here at Southern. I just talked with a girl a couple months ago who came to me in agony saying, I believe God has called me to ministry. I'm just tormented because my parents are telling me I'll never be able to get a job. I'll never be able to get paid. Um, and the church believes that I shouldn't be in ministry. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not at all the way it is. And we do see when women are graduating from our theology program, they are going on to positions of paid ministry. Yes, there is resistance. Yes, it's tough. Um, they need support and encouragement. But the church by no means has said women cannot be in ministry. In fact, we have conferences that are coming to us specifically saying, hey, we want to support women in ministry. We have people suggesting I'm willing to donate to start a scholarship fund so that specifically women can go into mm. ministry. Mm. Um, we're, we're seeing God moving. And, and at the same time that we have this massive wave of male pastors retiring, who are we going to fill those positions with? Because we don't have enough men. That's the honest truth. Mm. The young men are just not signing up. Not enough of them. Mm. And so we are going to experience a massive crisis as, as a church if we don't get more pastors soon, more people studying theology. And right now, we've essentially given a message to half of the church that women are not supposed to. You're not supposed to go into ministry, even if you believe you're called. So women are burdened, but doing something else. And, and, and when I've talked with some of these leaders who are standing against it, the way that they treat me and the, the disrespect and the, yeah, the, the scorn that they show and just the dismissiveness, the way that they treat women in ministry generally, um, you know, I, from my own personal experiences, I've seen some of this, but so many other people tell me the heartache that they go through. And I think it's just, it boils down to bad theology. Men who believe that men, that God has placed them in positions higher than women biologically and by ordination treat those women as though they're inferior beings. That's right. And, and again, this boils back to the very picture of God himself, right? Because if you have that position, you can't just have that position because you've got a text here or there that you're interpreting that way. You, you need 
that's not how theology works. You need a robust metaphysical system through which you can justify this type of interpretation and this type of practice or this this praxis. And and the only real option that I've seen is um, is headship theology. Right. It's the only metaphysical system through which you can say, here is a cosmic, you know, sort of structure and design straight from the very nature of God himself through which we can justify this practice. And it turns out that that entire metaphysical theological system is about as unadventist as you can get. We, at least within Protestant circles. I mean, there's even, even there's even Calvinists who are like, no, we disagree with this, you know? So it's like, if even if there's even Calvinists who are against it, like, man, ah, Adventists, like literally movement called to like, you know, reveal the truth about God's character of love getting caught up in this nonsense. It just shows us how far we've come from our original calling. And, and I think, you know, part of the thing, like you mentioned earlier um, as well, uh, is the whole idea of, you know, like obviously Paul in a lot of his letters, he's, he's, he's speaking about things that are deeply contextual and cultural to his day and age. And, you know, why don't we read it that way? I think this is where we need to also unravel the fundamentalist influence that's been in our church since the 1920s. Um, also after Ellen White's death, also not a part of like authentic Adventism throughout history uh, because fundamentalism with its sort of like verbal dictation view of inspiration, it makes it very difficult for people to actually imagine that there is a context to what's written here. And, and that's part of the nature of fundamentalism is that you take the words that you see and you just apply them violently and without thought and without context to any and every situation in the name of unbending faithfulness to what god has said and right. unfortunately often yeah. but still yeah. with deadly effect exactly yeah and and the thing is that that is not the most faithful way of reading scripture um which is a separate topic on its own i, I won't go in maybe i'll do a potter series in the future who's the guy who wrote the book on um on how when fundamentalism entered adventism uh, that's michael campbell Michael Campbell. Yeah, I might send him a message. Maybe we can do a Potternar series together on fundamentalism sometime. Um, yeah, it would be his, fascinating. It would be. Um, his book, do you remember the title of it? I was just trying to think of it. Um, Michael Campbell, I think it's 1920? Yeah, I was... Uh, I'm just going to Google it real quick because I want to recommend it for anyone who is uh, listening. Um uh, listening to this because this is a great book but michael campbell he, he basically wrote a book on um the you know how fundamentalism as as a theological paradigm uh actually entered the you know the adventist thought uh sorry the, the title of the book is 1919 the untold story of adventism's struggle with fundamentalism by michael campbell you can find it on on amazon incredible incredible book right um, so yes it, it's so eye-opening to see some of the where he just tracks this is what happened and you see the sharp shift in what happened in adventism this is where historians have such a power to show us this is actually what was going on in the early church this is how it changed and we we realize hey what i've actually done here is you know i've gone away from historic adventism 
instead of coming toward historic Adventism. You know, we, we have yeah. this strong push within the church. Let's be what the early Adventists were. Well, the early Adventists were empowering women. They were sending them out as evangelists. And Ellen White was saying, pay them from the tithe. I will make it happen. Mm. And this kind of revolutionary slaves are part of our church. Women are in leadership. Children are preaching. That is what characterized early Adventism. They were social justice activists speaking out against slavery. You know, these, these kinds of, you know, when you have a general conference president who was part of the, the Underground Railroad hiding slaves in his house, there's a certain mentality that pervades your church when, you know, what kind of person literally risks their very life, mm. the kind of person who's going to make this church move in a direction that God wants us to move of renewing our commitment to creation order that mm. male and female are both made in the image of God, that every person from every race comes from the same roots. Why as Adventists are we not moving people back to believing in creation and everything that creation brings with it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, as, as you were saying that, um, there was a, there was a thought that came across my mind. Um, oh, I, it seems to have slipped now, but um, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, what, one of the things that um, absolutely fascinates me about this is if we go back and just and just keep it you know keep it that clear thought that simple thought like god in his very nature is this being this eternal community of other centered love and i mean from that is where adventists that's where we get the great controversy from you don't have the great controversy without this god of other centered love this eternal community of other centered love you just don't have it without that right and this is the thing like calvinism doesn't have great controversy because it doesn't have a god of other centered love it has a a god who is sovereign and controls everything and everything that happens in history including satan's rebellion has all been prescripted by him in order to essentially show off right um so you don't have more important than love absolutely in, in that calvinistic mindset and you just have to trust mindlessly somehow mm -hmm. It's loving of God to create people so that he can roast them for eternity. Yeah. It, it doesn't make sense. And then you're told, believe it or else you're not biblical. Adventism right. is a revolution against that mindset. Yes, yes. That's and exactly what are, I was headed for. Yes. <laughs> flipping right back into it and destroying our ability to fulfill our mission in the process, not only of taking the gospel to the world, but of revealing the character of Christ, which is the key to taking the gospel to the world. The disciples couldn't take the gospel to the world until they loved one another and let go of their thirst for the highest place. Yeah. And then on it went into, you know, thousands being converted in a day, the Jews going, whoa, this mm. guy has been with Jesus. Look at the yeah. way he talks. Look at how yeah. fearless he is. Yeah. We would be revolutionaries if we were to stand up and say, creation shows us this. And every week we are celebrating creation. Come join us in a church that stands against abuse, that stands against patriarchy, where mm. everyone loves their neighbors as themselves and the character of Christ will be perfectly reproduced in his people with those people 
a church, a community made up of families that all have leadership structures where each person is serving in love instead of clawing for the highest place. It only happens supernaturally when the spirit fills us. So this is where the gifts of the spirit, the fruits of the spirit, all of those things come together in an outpouring of the spirit like Acts 2, where then the church becomes a place where every person loves with the kind of love that the angels have in heaven, the kind of love that flows from the heart of God and the rest of the universe stands back breathless and says, wow, I want that. Thank you for tuning in again, guys. I hope that was an absolute blessing for you. Just a few reminders before we wrap up this episode. Don't forget to go to the storychurchproject.com slash podcast. Directly under this current season, there is a link to the resources page. You click that link, it will take you to the page where all the books and articles and things that we've cited throughout this series, the links are there. You will either, it will either take you to the website where you can purchase a book. For example, the books we talked about today by Michael Campbell are linked on there. Or uh, for example, with regards to the paper that Nicole wrote, you can download it directly from there as well. So please don't forget to get a hold of that because we can't cover absolutely everything. This is just scratching the surface, but these books can go into a lot more detail and can answer many more of your questions. Also, don't forget, there is only one episode left in this season, and then we have our Q&A. If you have any questions, please email me, Pastor Marcos. That's with an O-S, not a U-S. I know I say pa Pastor Marcus a lot, but it's it's spelled O-S. So Pastor Marcos at thestorychurchproject.com. You email me there. Any questions that you have for Nicole, we are going to answer them in the Q&A episode. So please send them to me because that Q&A episode is coming fast. Finally, I don't want to end this episode without promoting the road, a journey through the narrative of scripture. This is a Bible study guide through the 28 fundamental beliefs of the Adventist church. But if you have been looking for a Bible study guide that is trauma informed, that presents a picture of God that is not abusive, that is relevant to the questions and wrestlings and existential hauntings of the modern age, you have to check out the road. You can get it on Amazon. It's got almost a hundred reviews still pushing close to five stars. Man, you got to check this out. People are loving it. I'm getting messages from people who are like secular new age or, or, or teenagers, pastors studying the Bible with the kids, parents studying the Bible with their kids. I'm even getting messages from people who are in their 60s and 70s who are reading this and they're like, wow, this is the best Bible study God I've ever used. You got to check it out, you guys. You got to check it out. So please go to the storychurchproject.com slash store. Click the link to the road. Click the other link that takes you to where you can buy it, depending on where you live in the world and get yourself a copy. You can also get them in bulk if you're at a church. You can set up an account with Ingram Spark and you can order them in bulk for a discount. So if that is something that you need, that option is there as well. All right, guys, I will see you next week. The last episode of Saying No to Headship Theology. We're going to talk about mission. We're going to talk about how headship theology negatively impacts our mission and how a true articulation of the character of God will reawaken the missional effectiveness of our movement. I'll see you then. 